If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open up to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 this morning, we're going to continue in the series that we began uh, last week. The series is called Living Hope. Peter writes to a persecuted people. He writes to what I would call uh, the majority group in the history of Christianity. We live in the minority, in the fact that we experience a freedom to practice our faith that most Christians in most times in most places in the world never see. The majority of believers today around the world, of, of the majority, we are the minority and that the majority of believers around the world today experience active persecution, be that physical oppression, political oppression, economic oppression, abuse of, of various forms against those who would follow Jesus Christ. And you look back over the last 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth in, in His physical body and, and He and completed His ministry, and the majority of those who have claimed to be followers of Christ over the last 2,000 years have lived the majority of their Christian experience during a time of persecution and of suffering. So we're the minority. We're the odd man out, so to speak, in terms of what most Christians have experienced. But, so we come to a book like First Peter written to a persecuted people, and there's a little bit of a disconnect for us. And, and we're quick to run to a place where, well, we all experience suffering of some kind, and we, and we, and we try to fit our suffering in to what Peter's talking about, but what he's talking about is, is, is somewhat removed from our experience for the most part. We don't often experience outright persecution. We may get an odd look every now and then when we speak the name of Jesus. We, we, we may uh, get a little bit of criticism when we seek to share the gospel, but in terms of actually putting our lives on the line for our faith, we don't see a lot of that in our, in our culture. And yet I would say there's a connecting point here for us. Because while we are the odd man out, we are not necessarily promised that we will continue to be the odd man out in days ahead. You see, Peter was writing to a group of folks in the region of the world that is now the country of Turkey. He was writing to these folks, and they were just on the cusp of the persecution that was getting ready to go empire-wide in terms of the Roman Empire. Up to this point in history, in the early 60s AD, uh, persecution was in pockets here and there, and it, and it kind of moved around from place to place. Within a matter of the next three to four years after Peter writes this letter, not only would Peter give his life for the sake of the gospel, he would be crucified by the Roman Empire because of his proclamation about Jesus Christ. But also, persecution would become an empire-wide phenomenon. The Roman Empire itself would make it stand against those who called themselves Christians. And for the next 200 years, that would be the state. And I would just say, folks, no, no, no prophetic word here, uh, but I would just say that 
there's a very real reality in our culture today that times are changing. And we may find ourselves a whole lot more like the majority of believers over the last 2,000 years. And I would say there will be some good that will come for that, with that for Christ's church. You see, persecution has a way of bringing about purity among the people of God like nothing else. Persecution has a way of bringing about joy in the lives of God's people like nothing else. Now, you wouldn't think that'd be the case. You would think that persecution would send you to the depths, and yet you look at the persecuted peoples around the world and you find a joy that we don't possess. Persecution has its strong points, and God uses it in miraculous ways. Today we're going to talk about three portraits of hope. First Peter written to a persecuted people is a letter of encouragement, a letter of hope. Chapter 1 he spoke to them about, he said, I want to talk to you about a living hope because Christ has been raised from the dead. You have a hope that is incorruptible, indestructible. This hope is an amazing hope that I want to speak to you about. And we're going to see three pictures of our hope today as we get into chapter 2 of First Peter if you're able to stand with me in honor of God's word today, would you do that as we read these first 12 verses? So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and he quotes from the Old Testament here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he quotes again, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You can be seated. Father, as we walk through these scriptures today, I pray that you would instruct us, God. Help us to see these three powerful pictures with fresh eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, God. Take hold of our hearts. Help us to see that our sufferings are not in vain. For those who are walking in Christ, that there is a purpose in our pain. You are the one who has made it so. You have ordained it to be. 
So teach us to trust you more as a result of this time in your word together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you this quote from C.S. Lewis. You all know I love C.S. Lewis, but I think he gets this one uh, very, very right. He said, the real problem is not why some pious, humble, believing people suffer, but why some do not. He was speaking about this thing called the problem of pain. And it's the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? You hear this asked a lot. In fact, it's one reason why many in our culture scoff at the claims of Christianity because they say if you have an all-powerful God who is also all-loving, then why is our world such a mess? If God could do something about the suffering and the pain in our world, then why doesn't He do something? And Peter is addressing a group of people who were intimately acquainted and would become more so in the years to come with suffering and pain and persecution well more so than, than we will, will probably, many of us will be in our lifetime. But C.S. Lewis understood, I believe, the message of First Peter and what we're going to look at here in this chapter that, that suffering is ordained by God and used by God for the good of His people in a way God accomplishes something through our pain that He cannot accomplish in any other way. Notice I said cannot, I didn't say will not. God uses our suffering to accomplish in us what He cannot accomplish in any other way. How do I know that? Because otherwise, God our Father is an abuser of His children. If there was any other way to accomplish our sanctification, to make us holy, to conform us to the image of Christ, then the ways of suffering that we find ourselves walking in, if there was any other way than what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, God did not answer. Remember, Jesus prayed, Father, if there be any other way than the cross, if there be any other way than this road of suffering and I'm getting ready to walk tomorrow, then let's do that. But not my will, but yours be done the next day Jesus went to the cross so why would those who are following after Jesus think that our lives will bear with them anything different than that if we do we're deceived the way of suffering the way of the cross is the way of the Christian so here's the truth for the day so when we're facing difficult times, trials of many kinds, as Peter talks about in chapter 4, when we're facing difficult times, we need a clear picture of the hope that we have in Christ. This is what will sustain us. If we have a clear picture of that for which Christ rescued us, if we have a clear understanding of the promises of God and what they mean for us in our lives as believers, if we understand that the God of all the universe who created everything that was created and breathed into our lungs the breath of life has a purpose in our pain, then it changes the way that we walk through the dark times of our life. So let me show you three of these pictures this morning. Actually, Peter gives them to you here in this chapter. Three pictures of the hope that we have in Christ. First of all, it's a picture of an infant. And there's a command here that's given. And the command is this. We are to crave God's promises. 
He says, first of all, there's some things that need to be put away. We'll come back to that in a minute. I want to go to verse 2. And so he says, here's the picture. Like newborn infants. Now, we've had a, a couple of babies born recently this weekend. We've got some new grandparents on the scene in our church now. Like, like these newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, this picture of milk and of, and of infants or of babies is used a couple of other times in the New Testament. In, in the book of 1 Corinthians, for instance, and also in the book of Hebrews, you find this picture of milk and babies. And in, in, in those pictures, though, it's used as a very negative reflection on those to whom it's being spoken. The message in both of those places, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and in the book of Hebrews, it's talking about this spiritual milk in such a way that you ought to have grown beyond that by now. You ought to be eating meat by now. Is what the writer of Hebrews says, but you all are still on milk because you're not growing up in your faith. It's a it's a it's a a rebuke of their immaturity. But that's not what Peter's doing here. We get in trouble sometimes when we take one picture in the scripture and think that it means the exact same thing in every other uh, way that it's used. You do need to compare scripture with scripture. But here, Peter is making a different kind of statement. He's saying, "I want you. I want you. I want to urge you." To be like babies in this way that you long for, crave, yearn after, desire to the deepest part of your being, the pure spiritual milk. That's speaking here about the Word of God. That you have a craving for the Word of God that can only be quenched by the Word of God. Those of you that remember what it's like to have an infant in your home, when the baby's hungry... That becomes priority number one because they're going to let you know until they're fed that they're hungry. That's the way that God intended it to be. An infant that doesn't function in that way, that doesn't crave that milk, has issues. We understand that very clearly, don't we? This is how babies end up in the NICU and in places where and we understand there's, there's something not right, something's not functioning correctly here because this baby isn't desiring to eat. And yet, why don't we transfer that picture into our spiritual lives? Chapter 1, he said, you've been born again to a living hope. Same thing Jesus said to Nicodemus, you, you must be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. So there's new life in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. New life has come. You've been born again in Christ. But we have this strange idea that it's okay for us to remain in infancy in terms of our faith. Now, Peter is urging them toward the yearning of the infant. He is not urging them to remain as infants. Do you see the difference? He's encouraging them, yearn after the things of God. That, you notice the purpose, so that you might grow up. So what keeps us from that? His encouragement is this. Don't fill up on junk, but to develop a good appetite for the good things of God. What is the junk? You notice there in verse 1. He says, so put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, evil, uh, envy, and, and slander. He says to put away these things. Get rid of these things. This is the junk in our lives that needs to be cast out in order that we might fill ourselves on this pure spiritual milk. David Helm wrote about this and he said this. He said, our growing up in salvation, it demands a love that is known for putting away some things while longing for others. Notice both parts. 
Some people think the Christian life is all about putting stuff out of your life. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And fulfill these rules of this list of don'ts and Jesus will be happy with you. But it's not about that. That's only step one. The putting away is necessary, but it's necessary so that we might put on these other things. He goes on. The things we are to put away have one thing in common. What is that? They all undo other people. Look at the list there in verse 1. This sin list is all about those things that divide us from one another, that destroy relationships. In contrast, he says, love builds others up. Love strengthens relationships. So you look at that list and you see malice. This speaking evil of one another. A malicious attitude destroys relationships. That's why God says put it away. Deceit, lying to one another destroys relationships. So he says, put that away. Hypocrisy, pretending to be one thing and living something else, that destroys relationships. So put that away. Envy, desiring for yourself that which belongs to another such that you desire them not to have it any longer. It's a, it's a form of stealing. Envy destroys relationships slander speaking ill of someone else whether it's true or not this is I think also bears up into the idea of, of gossip he says put this away because it destroys relationships now again don't forget the context here Peter is speaking to a persecuted people a people who have been scattered by persecution, a people who, who are living in the outlying areas of the Roman Empire, uh, looking for somewhere to, to hide out, but also at the same time looking for somewhere to live out their faith in Christ. And he's basically saying to them here in chapter 2, folks, you need one another. So put away that which hinders your relationships with one another. Christ saved you not to be a bunch of individual Christians running around uh, like the Lone Ranger in terms of your Christian faith. He saved you and rescued you to be a part of His church, to be built up together, as we'll see. That word together is necessary for our understanding of 1 Peter chapter 2. If you individualize this picture this morning, you will miss the message. If you individualize this picture in such a way that you walk away hearing that this was written just to you as an individual, you'll miss the message. Because the message is, is bound up in this idea of our togetherness in Christ. I hope you'll see it as we move through the rest of this. So let's look at the intention here. Again, the picture is one of infants. This seems so obvious, but I just want to say it one more time this morning. Folks, infants are intended to grow up. Isn't that true? I mean, when we see an infant physically that's not growing, we know, even if you don't have a PhD, you understand something's not right here. God created us for growth physically, and the same is true of our spiritual reality in Christ. You were redeemed so that you might grow up in Christ. Read Ephesians 4. You'll find this picture. Read 1 Corinthians 12, you'll find this picture. All throughout the New Testament, there's pictures of us growing up in Christ. But what prevents us from that? It's this junk. So last night we had our, our annual trunk or treat event. And our kids came home after the event and decided they were going to weigh their 
candy. And I am going to chastise you as a church because some of you in this room are responsible for this. That my children came home last night with 16 pounds of candy. Yes, we all laugh. We think it's real funny that the pastor's three-year-old now has, if his portion of that is 5.25 pounds or whatever that would be. And so now we're going to have to have over the next uh, several weeks until we subtly ship that candy off to Kent Miller's house. We're, we're going to subtly have to have this continual discussion. No, you can't have that candy right now because why? It'll ruin your supper. You won't have an appetite for anything else if we allow you to eat candy at 5.30 and supper is coming at 6 o'clock. Yes, we eat later than most people. That's just our way. But you, you won't be hungry for supper if you fill up on candy. And the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. Folks, why is it that we wrestle so much with, with no desire for the things of God? Why is it that we spend much of our Christian experience as Americans in places where we really don't have a down deep desire for the Word of God? Here's the diagnosis. We filled up on junk food. We filled our lives with the junk of this world, the junk of this culture, and these kinds, this kind of relational junk that that makes our stomachs, it should be making our stomachs sick. We should be vomiting these things out of our lives. But instead we continue to find fulfillment in those things. And so we don't grow. Your infant won't grow up right if all he ever eats is Oreos and Mars bars. The same is true for us spiritually. So you might be honest in yourself and say, you know, I don't really have a desire for the Word of God. Look what you're feasting on. Psalm 34, 8. David writes this. It's a beautiful psalm. I encourage you to go home and read it. There's so many allusions to Psalm 34 in 1 Peter 2. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. David writes this, by the way, in the midst of his own time of persecution. He is literally being hunted by the king of Israel, Saul, who no longer has any pleasure in David. He is being hunted, and he writes this in the midst of being hunted for his life. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In the midst of our darkest times, we too can say the same for walking by faith. Second picture. First was one of infants. The second is one of a place, of a building, uh, of literally a temple. We were created as God's place. And this is a reminder. We go back to the Old Testament. And God calls to himself this dude named Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. You, you first meet Abraham. And we don't want to get the idea that Abraham was just some really godly guy. And God saw him and said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to pick Abraham because he's just really an awesome and godly man. No, Abraham was a pagan. Living in a pagan land. And God spoke to Abraham and said, here's the deal, Abraham. I've got something different for you. I want to take you out of this pagan land and I want to show you a new land. I want to make something of you, Abraham, even though you're already past childbearing years. Abraham was already in his 70s when God first called him to himself. That's a good reminder, by the way, that you're never too old. 
You're never too old to do something great for God. But Abraham is called out in his 70s, and God says, here's the deal, Abraham. I'm gonna, if you'll follow me, if you'll by faith walk with me, I want to make you three promises, Abraham. These are take-to-the-bank promises, and I'm going to fulfill those completely on my own. They're not going to be dependent upon you. It's going to be, this is God saying, I'm going to promise you, Abraham, and it's going to be completely up to me to fulfill those promises. It's called a covenant, by the way. God's size promise that only God can fulfill, God makes with Abraham. Here's the promise. First of all, Abraham, I'm going to be with you. The promise of his presence. I'm going to be with you, Abraham. I'm going to be your God, and your descendants are going to be my people. Well, what's the problem there? First of all, Abraham doesn't got no descendants. That's bad English, but it's, it's, it's good theology for today. Abraham doesn't have, there's no descendants to be spoken of. And so... The Bible says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. So that was God's second promise. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to give you my presence. I'm going to give you a people. And they're going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky, more numerous than the grains of sand on the seashore. So shall your descendants be, Abraham. And Abraham, who was already past childbearing years, and by the way, his wife was too. He didn't have some young wife that could still have kids. No, she was already as well past childbearing years. He he believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness, the Bible says. So the promise of God's presence, the promise of God's people... And thirdly, the promise of God's place. Abraham, I'm going to take you. I'm going to bring you to a land. I'm going to give you a land, Abraham. A few years later, God takes Abraham up on a mountainside. And says, Abraham, look out as far as you can look. As far as your eyes can see. All the thousands of acres out in front of you, Abraham. You see all that land, Abraham? Do you see it? I'm going to give this land to your descendants. Now, there were people that owned that land. And they were powerful people. There was all kinds of obstacles in the way of that promise. And by the time Abraham died, he had only purchased one small little parcel of land on which he buried his wife Sarah. But the promise was for him and for his descendants. And God came through on the promise. He demonstrated his presence in the lives of those Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, generation after generation after generation, even in some of their most unfaithful times, as, as Grant read from Ezekiel a little while ago. Some of the darkest days of Israel, God was still demonstrating His presence in that picture of dry bones. And God did raise up a people. God did raise up the Israelites, His chosen people, not the most powerful people, not the most um, politically powerful people or economically powerful, not, not, not the best looking people, not, not, not the best people by any standard, and yet they were God's people. Why? Because He chose them by His grace. It was about God's unmerited favor being enacted upon that people. God's presence, God's people... And he also promised them a place. And God came through on that promise and gave them the land of Israel, the land that Abraham had spied out. God gave to those people during the days of Joshua. God keeps his promises. But understand that those promises were not just for Abraham. You see, Jesus addressed this one day. He was talking about what it really means to be children of Abraham because the Israelites have become really prideful. We're the descendants of Abraham. God made us these promises. God has come through on these promises. And if you're not an Israelite, you're a nobody. That's kind of where the Israelites had come to. And Jesus began to address that one day. He said, what does it really mean to be a child of Abraham? He said, I'm going to redefine it for you today. 
Jesus was good at redefining things. And as the creator of the world, he had every right to do so. He said, I'm going to redefine what it means to be a child of Abraham. No longer is it about your genetic code and that you are passed down through this lineage. You are not, no longer going to be born into the state of being a child of Abraham. But now I want you to understand what it means to be a child of Abraham now is this. It's those who have been rescued from sin and death by their faith in Jesus Christ. Just as Abraham walked by faith, so now his descendants will be those who walk by faith. Not born, a, not born into this reality, but born again into this reality. That's what it means now. And so these promises given to Abraham in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 20, these promises now belong to God's people known as the church. And that's what Peter's talking about here. He says, so you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he begins quoting the Old Testament. And so what we find here is, is two things. First of all, we find that Jesus is either a stone of salvation or a stone of stumbling. This is the dividing line here, folks. There's no gray area in what Peter is laying out for this persecuted people. He's saying you need to understand and be reminded that Jesus Christ will be one of two things for every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever walked this earth. He will either be the rock of salvation or he will be the stone of stumbling. There's no in-between. There's no gray area in this. He will be one of those two things. He will be, be that on which they stake their very lives or that which leads them to their everlasting destruction. It's a hard line, but it's a necessary line. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 21. He said, have you never read in the scriptures? By the way, he was talking to some folks that had memorized more of the scriptures than many of us have read. And he says, have you never read in the, scripture, in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? They would have read that thousands of times. He says, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's beginning to lay this foundation that something new is happening because of his ministry. Peter talks about it in Acts 4. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. The, the religious people of his day had rejected him, had crucified him. He said, you rejected him, but he has become the cornerstone. Remember what Isaiah talked about. Remember what the psalmist talked about in Psalm 118. That cornerstone that you've been hearing about, that was Jesus, and you crucified him. And he goes on to say, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's laying these powerful pictures out. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's speaking to Gentiles here saying, you didn't belong to God before. Before it was all about the Israelites and you were the outcast. You were everybody else that wasn't an Israelite that didn't belong to God's people. But now, but now you do. Same kind of thing Peter's talking about here. But now you do. What does that mean? It means you're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being what? The cornerstone. That which holds the entire building together. Our faith is built upon nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen. This is what we're saying. Everything that we believe is founded upon him and him alone. 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This was very offensive, by the way, to the Jewish people of that day. Remember what they were so mad about Jesus about? He looked at the temple one day, that which represented to them the very presence and power of God in their midst, which, by the way, 30 years from Peter's writing would be torn down to such a state that there wouldn't be one stone left on another. But this glorious temple that had been built that represented the presence and power of God, Jesus said, here's the deal. I'll tear down this temple and raise it back up in three days. Now, was he talking about the physical building that was located on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? No, he was talking about a new reality that the temple was no longer going to be a place to which you went to worship, that now God's people were going to become the temple, Jesus being the first of that line. And those who followed after him would be his temple and dwelt with the Spirit. No longer a division between Jews and Gentiles. No longer between the haves and the have-nots. No longer any of those divisions. We would be one in Christ and we would be built up upon Him the cornerstone. A new temple, the presence and power of God living in God's people in a way it had never done before. We live in a new day. I want you to think about the purpose of a house for a moment. As a high school student, uh, one of my favorite classes uh, was drafting class. Um, in, in drafting class, we, we got to do kind of some you know, architecture type stuff. This was before all the computerized business. We actually did it on uh, pencil and paper. I think I was one of the last to, to do it in that way. But we got to draw up house plans. And I think in my house where I grew up, I think these probably still exist in the closet somewhere, uh, we got to draw up these blueprints for, for a house. And my house was awesome, by the way. I mean, who doesn't want to have a hot tub in their bedroom? I mean, that's, as a teenage boy, that just, don't take that the wrong way, but that just sounds like an awesome deal. And, and you know, I had a tennis court that was, I played tennis as a high school student. It was really bad, by the way. But we had a, ten, had a tennis court attached to the back of the house. And, I mean, it, this place was awesome. But that house was never built. Uh, there's no way I could afford to build that house uh, the way that it was, it was drawn up. But there's something about houses that I think is important for us to see here in what Peter's saying, this spiritual house that God is building. Houses are meant to be built. I mean, those plans on paper were nice, and I could roll those out before you go, oh, man, that would be really cool. But it's not been built. And so on paper, it's only a figment of my own imagination until somebody takes those plans and actually brings them into reality, the house on paper serves no real purpose other than just a 16-year-old's dreams. But Jesus said, that's not what I'm talking about here. Don't misunderstand when he says he's talking about a spiritual house. Don't, don't think that he's talking about a figment of our imaginations. He's just simply saying, I'm wanting to relay to you a spiritual reality that is greater than even the temple that is sitting on the temple mount. Now, it's not there anymore, but in their day, Peter's saying, you know that temple that you've seen in Jerusalem, that place that's so awesome? What he's saying is, that pales in comparison with the spiritual reality that God, now God is enacting through His people known as the church. God is indwelling His people with His Holy Spirit in a new and powerful way. He is building you up. 
So babies are meant to grow up. Houses are meant to be built up. Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Notice these pictures. Each one of them is progressive. So walk in Him. There's progress there. Rooted and built up in Him. There's progress there. And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So let me say this before we move on. And I hope this won't be any more offensive to you than would be scripturally necessary. God never intended for your faith to stay in its infancy. God never intended for your faith to remain on the drawing board. He created you with the purpose of growing up and he, cre- he recreated you in Christ with the purpose of building you up. Again, don't so over-individualize the picture that you make it all about yourself. The picture is of the corporate body of Christ, but you are a part of that. Living stones. The picture is that God, in His grace, stepped down into the pit of our sin and rescued sins that were stones that were caught up in the muck and mire of our sin, and He cleansed those off with the blood of Christ and placed each one of them uniquely in this spiritual house known as the church to accomplish what purpose? The outworking of His glory in the world. Just as the temple represented the glory of God, so we as the temple of God are meant to display His glory. We're going to get to that before we come to the end this morning. But I want you to see the progress that's so necessary. Walking, being built up, growing in the faith. Thirdly, third picture is we are God's chosen people. Again, promises to Abraham, God's presence, God's place, God's people. We are God's people. Because of our faith in Jesus Christ. If you are trusting Jesus Christ today, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you have turned your life over to Him, you have repented of your sins and trusted Him by faith, then you are counted among the number to whom Peter is speaking. And he wants you to know a couple of things. First of all, he wants you to know that as God's people, every believer is both a priest and a preacher. You said, now wait a minute. You ain't getting me up on that platform. By the way, I would have said that as a 15-year-old as well. When God called me into the ministry, I was ready to flee to Africa to avoid this. So what I'm saying this morning is God hasn't necessarily called everyone to speak His Word from a platform. He has called every believer to speak His Word. But look at these two things that He says. You are a chosen race. By the way, those words were reserved for Israel in the Old Testament. Nobody else was a chosen race. If you weren't born an Israelite, you were excluded from this terminology. You are a royal priesthood. By the way, if you weren't an Israelite, you couldn't be a priest for God in the Old Testament. And by the way, you had to be not only an Israelite, you had to be of the tribe of Levi in order to qualify to be a priest. A descendant of Moses' brother Aaron in order to be considered as a priest. But now he's saying, you, church, you are a royal priest. You're a holy nation. Old Testament, that's only Israel. Nobody else qualifies for that terminology. He's saying, now God has applied it to you, followers of Christ. A people for his own possession. Old Testament, that's only Israel. But now he's saying, this has been opened up to all those who trust Christ by faith. Why? 
Here's the purpose statement. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is what we, we call as Baptists, this, this idea of the priesthood of all believers. And there's two aspects of this. I mean, individually, it means that every person who's walking with Jesus Christ has been called into this priesthood. And we'll talk about what some of the elements are about it in just a minute. But, but Peter's primary idea, and the one I want you to see, is that we are collectively, as the church called into this reality, where we now function as priests to a lost and dying world, in much the way, same way as the Old Testament priests did unto Israel, we are ministering to a lost and dying world in some very specific ways. Let me, let me show you a few of those. Hebrews chapter 10. He says, Therefore, brothers, by the way, the word brothers means believers. Those who are in Christ, if you've been rescued by faith in Jesus Christ, this applies to you. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Wait a minute. In the Old Testament, who goes into the holy places? You better not if you're not a priest. Only the priests go into the holy places and into the most holy place. Only one priest, the high priest, on one day of the year, the day of atonement, could go into the holy of holies to make sacrifices for the people. Only one guy, one day of the year, could go into the most holy place. And even that dude, they tied a rope around his waist lest he should offend God and be struck dead and they have to drag his corpse out of the most holy place. You can read about that in the Old Testament. But now he's saying we've got confidence to enter into the holy places. That confidence, by the way, better not be in you. That's not because you're good enough or smart enough or because people like you. It's because Jesus Christ chose you for himself, rescued you from your sin, and has given you confidence to walk by faith into the holy places. By the way, those holy places now reside in you, so it makes it a whole lot easier. To enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that curtain that divided the holy places. No priest goes past this curtain. There were signs saying, if you dare to enter in here, you're taking your life in your own hands. We will strike you dead if God doesn't. We weren't messing around. Life or death was hanging in the balance between those curtains. And when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the curtain? It was split in, in two from top to bottom as if God took a piece of paper and just shredded that sucker. A curtain that was so thick that not an ounce of light would enter in through that curtain was torn in two by the God who was inviting people into fellowship with Him. He opened a way for us, the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You don't draw near to God in the Old Testament days. What do you do? You run and hide. Remember when Moses was at Mount Sinai and getting the Ten Commandments? What were the people doing? They were, they were shivering in fear saying, don't let God talk to us. Moses, you go. You know, like the, like the dude in the horror movies that everybody pushes through the door first. That's kind of what they were doing with Moses. You go up on the mountain, Moses. We're going to stay down here and make a mess of ourselves, by the way. But we're going to stay down here. You go up on the mountain and talk to God. That's too scary. Now here he's saying, now we have confidence to draw near to God and have the promise if you draw near to God he will draw near to you so you draw near to God let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience our bodies washed with pure water those were pictures sprinkled with blood cleansed with water those were pictures that were reserved for the priesthood 
in order for them to be able to go in and to minister on behalf of the people to God. These things had to happen. I said, these pictures are for you. You are called to be God's priest. So what's the command? So let us hold fast. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. As followers of Jesus Christ, you have entered into a covenant like Abraham did. The promises of God belong to you not because of you, but because of him. And so you trust him and you walk with him in full assurance of faith. Romans 12, Paul talked about this as well. He said, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you, brothers, by the the mercies of God. Sorry, I went too far there. By the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Who offers sacrifices in the Old Testament? Priests and priests only. In fact, there are a couple of dudes in the Old Testament that got in some major trouble for offering sacrifices and they weren't among the priestly line. But now he's saying you offer not just sacrifices, you offer the kind of sacrifices that didn't even exist in the Old Testament, living sacrifices. Same picture Peter talks about in chapter 1. You, are, you have a living hope because of the resurrection. You are living stones because Jesus rescued you. And you can offer yourselves now as living sacrifices Holy and acceptable to God. You say, wait a minute, I don't, I don't believe I'm holy and acceptable to God. If you're in Jesus Christ today, you are. If you've been redeemed by His blood, you are holy and acceptable to God. You say, but i still got sin in my life. Yeah, that's why, that's why the sanctification of suffering is needed in you and in me. But holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you by testing may approve that which is as good, pleasing, and perfect will. Just a couple of last things today. I want to draw this together. First, first of all, he begins in verses 11 and 12 to talk about something he's going to carry on through in the next couple of chapters. He begins to speak about How in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our persecutions, in the midst of our darkest times, this is not the day in which we just go find a place to sit and wait till it's over. That's the the tendency. That's the temptation is I'm just going to wait this out and when it's done, then I'll get up and walk again. No, he is calling them to walk and to progress and to move and to do in the midst of their difficulties. Why? Because our good works are meant to display His great glory. This is where the rubber meets the road here in these verses. Beloved, don't you love that word? Would you hear your Heavenly Father saying to you today, You are my Beloved. It's the Greek word agapetes, from which we hear that, that Greek word for love called agape. Some of you have heard that word before. It's the unconditional love of God, completely unmerited by the beloved ones and yet given as a gift. That's how God loves you. He calls you the beloved. And so, beloved, just rest in your belovedness, right? No, he says, I urge you. Calling you to action. 
Here's the command. Here's what do you do with what we've been talking about. Here, what, do you, what do you do once you see these pictures? And what it means to be an infant yearning for this pure spiritual milk. And what it means to now be the place of God built up as living stones. What it now means to be the people of God drawn into this priesthood. Called to live and to act and to work for God. Now what do we do as a result? He says, Beloved, I urge you. As sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So there's a putting off again, just like in verse 1. There's some things that need to be put off. Passions of the flesh that need to be cast out of our lives. But the Christian life, hear me, please hear me on this. The Christian life is not just about those things that you get rid of. I really hope we would hear an amen on that. Because we've been misinterpreted all throughout our culture, especially in recent days. Christians are just those who stand against stuff. But folks, it's got to be more than that. Because he goes on and he says, And so keep yourself. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our good works are meant to display His great glory. It's just what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You've probably heard this verse before. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and say, man, what a good guy he is, right? No. What are the purpose of our good works? Not to gain our salvation, but as a result of our salvation, we live out the good works God prepared in advance for us to do for His glory and for the good of those around us. Notice what he says. Last verse, I just wanted you to, I want you to see this in verse 12. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God when? On the day of visitation. I believe there's a dual meaning here. Some people want to nail down on one or the other. I think there's a dual meaning on purpose here. First of all, some would say, well, he's speaking here about the day when Jesus is going to return and the judgment of God is going to fall. He's speaking about that day when God is going to come visit his people in judgment. I would say, yes, that's one of the days he's speaking about here, but I think there's a dual meaning. I think he's also speaking about that day in which those who were lost, who were separated from God without God and without hope in the world, were going to see the lives of believers being lived out in the midst of persecution and suffering, that they were not abandoning their faith, that they were standing strong, that they were continuing to proclaim the gospel for which they were being persecuted, and that some were going to look upon those believers and say, I want to know that God. I want to know that God who walks with me through cancer. I want to know that God that enables me to stand up under persecution. I want to know that God who gives hope and joy and blessing in the darkest of times. That's what I want. That some would look upon the lives of believers being lived out in the darkest times and say, there's something they have that I want. And that they would be reborn to that yearning, that infantile yearning for the things of God because of the church of God. Walking with Christ in the midst of the darkest of times. So while you're suffering, what is the purpose in your pain? That others may see your faith lived out in those dark days 
and say, that's exactly what I've been looking for. So here's your take-home, church. These three pictures are ultimately meant to call us, to call on our lives. These pictures aren't just, wow, isn't that nice? It's, it's a call on us. These pictures are calling us to abandon evil desires. There's a putting off. It's necessary. There's a putting off of these evil desires, these fleshly passions, the, the, this junk food that we talked about from the beginning of this morning. There's a, there's a putting off of those things by the power of God. And then there is a putting on. There's a being adorned with good deeds for the sake of the gospel. Let me be clear. Not good deeds in order to earn the favor of God. You'll never do enough. You will never do enough good deeds to earn the favor of God. He offers you His favor freely by faith in Jesus Christ. He's offering you that freely. But then, as a result of that, God begins to work out your faith in good works. In others seeing the way that you live out your faith. Then God gets the glory and people are drawn to Him. Folks, isn't it our desire somewhere, if you're... you're, If you're in Christ today, isn't there somewhere in us this desire that we would have the kind of lived out faith that others would look at and say, yeah, that's what I want. I hope that's in us. And if not, I pray God put that desire in us. That they may see our good deeds. They may see how we love one another. They may see how we sacrifice for one another. They may see how we continue to walk by faith in the difficult times, that they may see our good deeds and not say, man, what a bunch of great Christians they are. They might catch a real glimpse of the God we serve and say, that's the God that's worthy of my worship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father God, I pray that whatever level of suffering and difficulty resides in our life right now. God, that once again you would help us to see the purpose in our pain. That you would remind us today that you as our loving God will not waste even one ounce of the sufferings we endure. That they will all bear an eternal weight of glory. You you will be worshipped for eternity because of what you have done in your church, especially through the dark days. Father, I pray you would build a stronger faith in us. The kind of faith that others would look upon and say, I want a faith like that. I want to know how to walk by faith when the lights go out. I want to know how to walk by faith when death comes knocking at my door. I want to know how to walk by faith when relationships in this world fall apart and all I have left to cling to is Christ. I want to know that and I want to make the world wants to see that lived out. God, we, we make this our profession today that the world wants to see a living faith. And so would you put that within us? We pray for the putting off of that which would hinder us from this walk of faith and we pray 
for a putting on of that which would spur us on. For your glory. For the good of those who will come to you through our proclamation of the gospel. That the name of Jesus, the name above every name, the only name given under heaven by which we might be saved would be proclaimed until such a day as he comes to rescue his people forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go out today, I want to read over you, church, the, the last of 1 Peter 2. May this be an encouragement to you. I don't know what you're facing this week. This may be one of the best weeks of your life coming up. It may be one of the the worst. Regardless of your circumstances, I, I pray this over us today even as I, as I read this. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As we go out today, we pray that that is an encouragement for you. Father, thank you that there is a purpose in our pain. There's a reason for our suffering. Standing as the reason is our Savior who suffered in our place. Remind us this week, Lord, that the road to salvation is a road of suffering. Christ was crucified, dead and buried so that we might be redeemed. And the call upon our lives is to take up our cross and follow Him. Whatever way, whatever form the cross takes this week, God, give us the grace to bear up under it and to continue to walk by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Let's be dismissed.